Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ariel Tan of IPS and the MC today. Before we proceed with today's program, in view of the passing of the late Tuan Haji Othman Wok, former cabinet minister and a founding father of Singapore, let us observe a minute of silence in remembrance of his life and contributions to Singapore. Thank you. Please be seated. Now on to the second lecture of this IPS Madden Lecture Series on the challenges of governance in a complex world. By Mr. Peter Ho, our 2016-2017 SR Madden Fellow. Following his lecture, Mr. Ho has agreed to take questions from the floor. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Chan Heng Chi, Ambassador at Large and Chairman of the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities. The lecture will be filmed and uploaded on the IPS website and YouTube. It will also be live streamed on Facebook. And now may I invite Mr. Ho to take the floor. Good, good evening. This series of lectures touch on the challenges of governance in an era of growing complexity. But during Singapore's early years, our founding fathers were seized with multiple critical and urgent problems of the day. They grappled with poor living conditions, political and economic uncertainty, and racial and religious tensions. Tuan Haji Othman Wok was instrumental in pushing for multiracial and religious harmony in Singapore. If he and the rest of our founding fathers had not carried out their task as well as they did, we would not be here today, a peaceful and prosperous nation with the privilege of thinking about and preparing for the future. We live in the Anthropocene, Preceding epochs like the Holocene and the Pleistocene, more commonly called the Ice Age, were all periods in the Earth's long geological history that dates back four and a half billion years. And human beings have only existed in the last 200,000 years or so, from some time in the late Pleistocene. And this is just the blink of an eye in geological terms. A view that is gaining currency in the scientific world 
is that human activity has begun to have a significant impact on the geology and the ecosystems of our world. And this is now often referred to as the Anthropocene, and many date its origins to the start of the Industrial Revolution. But what does the Anthropocene have to do with governance? Well, in the Anthropocene, human activity is the prime driver of change of the Earth's ecosystem. What is most striking is that since the 1950s, after the end of the Second World War, change caused by human activity has actually started to accelerate. And this phenomenon is sometimes referred to as the Great Acceleration. Changes are now taking place at a pace and on a global scale that is unprecedented in history. The evidence is made visible in a spectrum of global indicators which you see here, including greenhouse gas levels, ocean acidification, deforestation and loss of biodiversity. And it is not difficult to understand why. Today, increasing urbanization is driving up consumer demand. Globalization has taken off because of airline travel, container shipping, telecommunications, and the internet. Tourism is booming, and even the number of McDonald's restaurants is increasing. As a result, the global economy is expanding, and the demand for infrastructure is growing. And these combine to create a spiraling demand for resources, food, water, and energy, that is straining the world's ecosystem. Climate change is one major consequence, but it is only one of many dangers that lie ahead as the great acceleration continues unabated. Technology is a major factor in propelling the great acceleration. Moore's law says that computing power doubles every two years. It is still holding more than 50 years after Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, made the observation. But it is not just computing power that is growing at an exponential rate. In his latest book, Thank You for Being Late, Tom Friedman presents evidence that other technologies are also changing at a similarly breathtaking rate. And he writes of simultaneous accelerations in technology, globalization, and climate change, all interacting with one another. If the Anthropocene started with the Industrial Revolution, Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, argues that there have actually been three industrial revolutions since the 18th century, and a fourth is upon us. He explains thus, The first industrial revolution used water and steam power to mechanize production. The second used electric power to create mass production. The third used electronics and information technology to automate production. Now a fourth industrial revolution is building on the third, the digital revolution that has been occurring since the middle of the last century. It is characterized by a fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between the physical, digital, and biological spheres. But he goes further to argue that the fourth industrial revolution has no historical precedent because when compared with previous industrial revolutions, the force is evolving at an exponential rather than a linear pace. Moreover, it is disrupting almost every industry in every country, and the breadth and depth of these changes herald the transformation 
of entire systems of production, management and Singapore has experienced its own version of a great acceleration. In less than half a century, we moved out of the third world and entered the first world. Furthermore, by most indicators, we are now in the top rank of the first world. Life expectancy has shot up from 65 years when we gained independence after separation to around 83 years today. An astonishing achievement given that it happened within less than two generations, that is 10 years every generation. No other country has achieved so much in so short a time. But an implication of this remarkable transformation is that change in Singapore has not occurred at a sedate pace. Unlike most countries that have tracked a more gradual path to the top, change in Singapore during this period has the lurch of an acceleration rather than the gentle sensation of a velocity. Within less than two generations, societal demands have moved from the basic needs at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, such as food, shelter, water and security, towards the more complex psychic needs at the top of the hierarchy, such as self-esteem, self-actualization and transcendence, which are needs that governments find very difficult to service. One could argue that this is a happy problem to be tackling instead of dealing with a hard-scrabble existence as a third-world country. But acceleration gives little time for government and society to adapt. Decision cycles are compressed within shorter and shorter time frames. But it is not a treadmill from which we can get off unless we are prepared to give up the quality and way of life that we enjoy today. Among other things, the Great Acceleration increases the complexity of our world, a challenge that I discussed in my first lecture two weeks ago. As a result, the Anthropocene today is characterized by growing volatility, V, uncertainty, U, complexity, C, and ambiguity, A, or VUCA, that's a military acronym, leading to an increase in the frequency of black swans and unknown unknowns. In other words, we will face bigger shocks, more often, but with less time to discern causes and to respond. With increasing VUCA, governments face two particular challenges. The first challenge is how to deal with inevitable disruptions that are the effect of rapid change. New technologies can disrupt massively. Such di disruptions could be black swans, but mostly and probably luckily, they are not. Instead, there are disturbances to the normal flow of life, a terror attack, a cyber hack, a new virus, a flood, civil unrest, economic turbulence, and so on. They have a disruptive effect because we live in a highly interconnected and complex world. And the Great Acceleration causes interconnections to intensify. So the frequency of disruptions will increase and the amplitude of the impact will grow. The second challenge is how to manage risk, which is the effect of uncertainty, and in particular, how to manage its impact on national aims, objectives, plans, and policies. And I will now deal with each of these challenges and how governments respond. If disruption is a constant in our VUCA world,
then it behoves us to spend time thinking about how individuals, organizations, societies, and countries can respond. The preemption and prevention of disruption, despite our effort, best efforts, cannot be guaranteed. The name of the game is not imperviousness from disruption, but recovering and even growing after being disrupted. That is resilience. Uh, Judith Rodin, who is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation and who launched the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative, of which Singapore is part, provides a good definition of resilience. She writes, Resilience is the capacity of any entity, an individual, a community, an organization, or a natural system to prepare for disruptions, to recover from shocks and stresses, and then to adapt and grow from a disruptive experience. On 25th February 2003, the SARS virus entered Singapore through three women who had returned from Hong Kong with symptoms of atypical pneumonia. The virus then spread with frightening speed through the hospital system in Singapore. It confounded our medical authorities in the beginning. They did not know how the virus spread and why it spread so aggressively. The fatality rate was shocking. By the time the SARS crisis was declared over in Singapore, 33 people had died out of the 238 infected. SARS was not just a disruption. It was indeed a big black swan for Singapore, and it was also a very frightening time for Singaporeans. Then Prime Minister Goh Chok Tong described it as a crisis of fear. Overnight, visitor levels arrivals plunged, and the entire tourism industry came to a grinding halt. SARS severely disrupted the Singapore economy, leading to a contraction during the second quarter of that year. When the normal flow of life is disrupted, as SARS did to Singapore, societies will need resilience to cope. Singapore's response to SARS is well documented. One of the most critical early decisions was to designate SARS as a national crisis, not just a public health problem. And this meant that all the resources of government, and in fact of the nation, could be harnessed in a whole-of-nation approach to tackle the wicked problem of SARS. The SF put an entire army division at the disposal of the health authorities. The police did likewise. Within weeks, MINDEF's Defence Science and Technology Agency, or DSTA, and the DSO National Laboratories developed a contact tracing system as well as the famous infrared fever screening system now adopted around the world. Such innovations epitomize resilience during a crisis. But this could not have been achieved if the government had been organized with an obsessive focus on efficiency and optimization. These are well and good if everything goes according to plan. But things rarely go as planned most times, we cannot predict when disruptions will occur. The ability to respond quickly and decisively to crises and disruptions helps to manage uncertainty arising from our VUCA world. Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who first coined the term black swan as a metaphor for strategic shock, notes that when disruptions occur in overly optimized systems, errors compound, multiply, swell, with an effect that only goes in one direction, the wrong direction. But as Taleb notes, 
Redundancy is ambiguous because it seems like a waste if nothing happens, except that something unusual happens usually. So to deal with these disruptions, governments must go beyond a rigid and unthinking emphasis on efficiency. Lean systems that focus exclusively on efficiency are unlikely to have sufficient resources to deal with unexpected shocks and volatility. There should be some fat or contingent capacity in the system. Of course, I'm not making an argument for establishing bloated and sluggish bureaucracies. It is worth recalling that in 1967, Lee Kuan Yew said that societies like ours have no fat to spare. They are either lean and healthy or they die. That maximum rightly articulated and reinforced the scarcity vulnerability narrative, which was appropriate for a time when Singapore was hardly in a position to be profligate in its spending. It reinforced the need to be prudent in the use of our resources and to save what we could for rainy day. But I believe that one thing governments ought to have, indeed should any large, indeed any large organization that is concerned with its survival over the long term should have, is a small but dedicated group of people to think about the future. Their job is to look for challenges and opportunities emerging over the horizon. And that is why I've spent a good portion of my first lecture on the importance of this capacity. In Singapore, the government set up its own think tank for foresight, the Centre for Strategic Futures. The skill sets for thinking about the future, which is inherently uncertain and unpredictable, are quite different from those required to deal with short-term volatility and crisis. Also, those charged with thinking about the future should be allocated with the bandwidth to focus on the long term without getting bogged down in the minutiae of day-to-day -day routine. Of course, one could argue that it is the business of all government agencies and the government as a whole to prepare for the future. But even if they try to do that, it is not easy for the planner or policy maker to challenge what I would call the official future especially when that future is consistent with an organization's biases and preconceptions. Those who articulate a radically different future are at danger of being branded as subversive or lacking a sense of reality. So they will have a real incentive to make their scenarios more palatable for the audiences. But in doing so, they also inadvertently reduce the impetus for the organization to confront un uncomfortable alternative futures and to prepare itself for them. And that is why Peter Schwartz, one of the most important of Shell's scenario planners, once said, those whose job is to think about the future should also be caught jesters, who can say the most ridiculous things and get away with it. They are supposed to help us suspend our beliefs and maybe our disbeliefs. Of course, this will not eliminate shocks. But by improving the ability to anticipate such shocks, we can reduce their frequency and impact, and in turn this will help make governments and nations more resilient. Another part of the answer is the availability of reserves. If not reserves in natural resource, then other kinds of national reserves built from prudent policies and forward planning saving for the proverbial rainy day. 
The SAF and its supporting organizations like DSTA and DSO are part of the reserves of the nation in the sense that they are an insurance policy, and a large one at that, for contingency that will hopefully never occur. But without that fat in the system, it is doubtful that Singapore would have been able to respond to the SARS crisis as it did in 2003. Singapore's government is also committed to building ample financial reserves from the savings and surpluses of the government budget, given a, giving the country a buffer to draw on in times of crisis. And that is a reason why Singapore is one of the largest reserves in the world, at least on a per capita basis. The utility of the national reserves was evident during the 2007-2008 global financial crisis. The Singapore government for the first time drew on the national reserves in the form of a $20 billion residence package, and I think the name was not chosen randomly. It was primarily aimed at preserving and enhancing business competitiveness as well as promoting job retention during a period of great uncertainty. A key aspect involved, as you know, encouraging firms not to retrench workers, but to supporting retraining programs and to provide temporary part-time arrangements. Once the world economy began to recover, Singapore firms were able to respond with alacrity and speed to catch the winds of global economic recovery. Skills Future is another example of how Singapore tries to future-proof the workforce by establishing a norm of lifelong learning and by creating the infrastructure to make continuing education possible. But it is not always possible, because it is not always possible to predict manpower trends accurately, having a system in place to encourage upgrading and a culture that encourages lifelong learning will help Singapore and Singaporeans ease through changes and uncertainties in the employment landscape. It is part of a larger effort to ensure that Singapore remains resilient in the face of uncertainty and future shock. Another issue was at play during the SARS crisis, fear. It rears its head not only during deadly epidemics, even in the financial crisis, as in 2008 after the Lehman Brothers collapsed, fear can go viral. As Franklin Roosevelt said during the Great Depression in 1933, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The dissemination of trusted information is an important way of managing fear. During the SARS outbreak, Singapore took a transparent approach. The government laid bare the uncertainties and risks during SARS, even as other countries sought to reassure their citizens that SARS was under control. Singaporean leaders told the people, not only what they knew, but also what they did not know. They shared their concerns. They avoided providing false assurances. The diffusion of trusted information, which is transparency, laying bare uncertainties, and acting with empathy, was possible because of and built on the underlying trust, not just of the people in the government, but also of the government in the people. Singaporeans trusted the government for its effectiveness and integrity. The government trusted Singaporeans to deal maturely with uncertainty as the SARS outbreak unfolded. And this two-way trust between the government and the people formed a deep source of national resilience in Singapore during SARS. Indeed, trust is an important theme in my le lecture today, and I'll return to it later on.
Nicholas Nassim Talib introduced another term, anti-fragile, in his book of the same name. His proposition is that if fragile things break when exposed to stress, then something that is the opposite of fragile would not just hold together when put under pressure, instead it will get stronger. He called this quality anti-fragility. As I noted earlier in the definition by Judith uh, Rodin, a resilient society not only returns to the state that it was at before the disruption, it also adapts and grows. Similarly, an anti-fragile society reaches a new state, almost like a muscle that, tested by stress, grows stronger. The cornerstone of Singapore's counter-terrorism strategy is a community response plan, and this enhances community vigilance, community cohesion, and community resilience. Singapore has built networks of community leaders and influencers by forming the Interracial and Religious Confidence Circles, or IRCCs. And through these networks, the leaders have helped strengthen understanding and build ties between different races and religions. And for the Muslim leaders, they not only speak out against those who distort Islam, but also use the media, mosque and madrasa to assert mainstream Islamic values. Singapore is also one of only six countries with structured programs to rehabilitate and reintegrate terror detainees into society. The Religious Rehabilitation Group was set up in 2003 after the J.I. terror plots were thwarted. RRG counsellors, all of them trained religious scholars and teachers, have helped terror detainees understand how they have been misguided by radical ideologues. The counselling sessions also extend to family members of detainees. Every released terror detainee in Singapore has undergone counselling as part of rehabilitation. Most have returned to their families, found jobs and integrated back into Singapore society. The RRG builds social resilience also through outreach. It organises conferences, dialogues and briefings to educate the entire community including the schools and madrasas, about key Islamic concepts that have been mis misinterpreted and misrepresented by the extremist groups such as J.I., Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and so on. The example of RRG illustrates a broader point. Just as trust between the government and citizens in Singapore predated SARS, strengthening the social fabric has been a key strategy since independence. Now, Singapore takes an interventionist approach to promote social mixing. It uses quotas to avoid the build-up of racial enclaves in public housing estates. It has introduced a raft of policies to ensure that growth is inclusive. Investments in public education, grants for skills training and tax credits for the working poor. Strengthening the social fabric also means building anti-fragility through simulations designed not just to hone citizens' and agencies' instincts of how to respond in crisis, but also to build confidence that we can overcome crisis. The most recent initiative in this vein is SG Secure. In addition to raising awareness, SG Secure runs exercises. The psychological strengthening is a key dimension of what Singapore calls total defence. Now let me turn to my second area of focus in this lecture, which is risk. Disruptions such as a terrorist attack or the SARS epidemic 
are examples of risk events, acute and discrete occurrences. A risk issue is a development or trend that evolves over time. For example, the rise of transnational terrorism is a risk issue. Risk can also be defined not just in terms of trends or events, but in terms of whom it affects. There are enterprise risks that have an effect on an agency's objectives. These include operational risks that arise from an agency's day-to-day -day operations and services. And there are strategic risks. There will always be threats to national outcomes, policies and plans, because no amount of analysis and forward planning will eliminate the volatility and uncertainty that exists in a complex world. And these threats constitute strategic risk. By their very nature, strategic risks often arise out of wicked problems and involve cross-cutting issues that require a focus on the interconnections between risks. In other words, strategic risks for the country need to be dealt with at a whole-of-government or even a whole-of-nation level. After the Asian financial crisis in the boom years leading up to 2008, most people dismissed the risk of another financial crisis happening. Before 2008, central bankers felt that they had mastered macroeconomic management to the extent that prolonged inflation and deep recessions were no longer possible. A massive hubris dominated the financial world. Those who foresaw an impending crisis were roundly ignored. The consequence, which was the global financial and economic crisis of 2008-2009, was catastrophic and tragic. Many of our, much of our reluctance to grapple with such game-changing issues, such as the global financial and economic crisis, actually stems from an unwillingness to face the consequences of an uncertain and unpredictable future. The consequences interfere with long-held mental models and business or self-interest, creating cognitive dissonance. At the heart of it, cognitive dissonance is about denial, the inability to acknowledge uncertainty, and an unwillingness to accept the need to adapt to a future that might be radically different from the current reality. Cognitive dissonance leads to many organizations, including governments, underestimating risks, ignoring warning signs of impending crisis, and taking decisive action only when the crisis unfolds. And this is the mother load of black elephants, which I described in my first lecture. And you can be sure that unlike its endangered real-life cousins, the black elephant is a species that is thriving in the Anthropocene. How can we limit or counter the influence of such bias? Obviously, the occurrence of a crisis that radically alters our mental models is one corrective. And the SARS crisis forced the Singapore government, as well as governments in China and Hong Kong, to take more deliberate steps to prepare for future pandemics. SARS corrected our biases, making us realize that the risks and costs of a pandemic were not trivial and increased our alertness to the onset of another pandemic. Without SARS, it is difficult to imagine that our subsequent responses to the bird flu and the swine flu would have been aggressive and proactive as they have been. Contrast our response 
and that of other Asian governments such as China and Hong Kong, with a lack of urgency in other countries which were largely unaffected by SARS. But while crises can break our outdated mental models, they are really a very expensive way to force recognition of our biases. No government or society should have to wait for an actual terrorist attack to take the threat of terrorism seriously. Now, many of the big risks that governments have to deal with, natural disasters, pandemics, even financial crises and political upheavals, can often be assigned probabilities. And this ought to lead governments to take precautionary measures to mitigate these risks. But often they do not because of cognitive problems. It seems to me that big risk is ultimately not the province of actuaries, instead it's a broader social construct, meaning that an organisation and its people need to agree that a risk exists. This is important as resources need to be allocated to prevent the risk or at least mitigate its impact, for example through contingency planning. For obvious examples, Japan takes the earthquake risk very seriously because it is the most seismically active country in the world. Everyone in Japan understands that earthquakes pose a perennial and at least life-altering, if not existential, threat. Because there is a national consensus, no expense has been spared to make Japan resilient to earthquakes to the maximum extent possible. But before Fukushima, there was no such consensus on nuclear safety. Most Japanese believed that nuclear power was safe because the authorities declared it to be safe. They were lulled into complacency by this rhetoric, and it proved to be a dangerous assumption. So the triple disaster of 2011, the Tohoku earthquake, the tsunami that followed, and the Fukushima nuclear disaster was accentuated because nuclear accidents were not in the Japanese pantheon of serious risk. And no doubt, the Japanese now take the risk of nuclear accidents much more seriously. But it is not just natural catastrophes that are risks. One risk issue attracting a lot of attention these days is artificial intelligence or AI. A hypothesis gaining traction is that AI poses an existential risk. In the vivid imagination of some, perhaps of the uh, Terminator Skynet kind, and that this risk is in need of much more attention than it currently commands. And it is a view that has attracted support of famous names like Elon Musk, Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking. Of course, the cost of responding to some extreme risks can be too high, especially when governments are seen as spending inordinate resources to prepare for a host of eventualities that may never happen. For instance, there's a possibility of the Earth being destroyed by a planet-killing asteroid. But this is probably not a risk that we can meaningfully prepare for at this point in time, given the prohibitive cost today, that is, unless you are a Hollywood scriptwriter. We cannot eliminate every risk, but we need to manage them in such a way that strategies and their premiums do not have all to be front-loaded. The reality is that agreement on what constitute the biggest risks to a nation must be reached through consensus. Without that consensus, 
the government and political leadership will find it very difficult to allocate resources to mitigate these large risks. A national conversation to assess these risks is important. Otherwise, the alternative is to wait for disaster to strike before action is taken. By then, of course, it's too late. Our Singapore conversation is actually an example of how risks are discussed at the national level. The risks of ill health emerged as a big concern during our Singapore conversation and arguably gave impetus to changes in health policy, such as the introduction of MediShield Life. Risk is also a psychological construct because people have blind spots and cognitive biases. For example, the availability heuristic is the tendency to overestimate the likelihood of events with greater availability in memory, which can be influenced by how recent the memories are or how unusual or emotionally charged they are. So after a terrorist attack, we think that another terrorist attack is a more probable risk than something else, simply because it is fresh in our minds. The availability heuristic is illustrated via an observation made by Gerd Gergen Renzer, a German psychologist who studies risk. He's been to Singapore. He found that in the months after 9-1-1, passenger miles on the main US airlines fell by between 12% and 20%, while road use jumped. The change is widely believed to have been caused by concerned passengers opting to drive rather than to fly. But the reality is that traveling long distances by car is actually more dangerous than traveling the same distance by aeroplane. And Professor Gigan uh, Renzer estimated that an extra 1,600 Americans died in car accidents in the year after the 911 attacks, indirect victims of the tragedy. Identification, management, and communication of risk must take into account this human tendency to underestimate or overestimate risk because of their own cognitive biases or because it is inconvenient to admit to the obvious. It is inevitable that emerging technologies carry enormous risks just as they promise huge opportunities. In recent years, a new wave of emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, drones, robotics, 3D printing or additive manufacturing, big data, data analytics, cloud computing, the Internet of Things have begun to take off. Combined with the earlier wave of Infocom technologies, they promise to be disruptors and sometimes major game changers, giving individual, the individual capabilities and powers which were previously only the province of governments and large organizations. As a result, cities, societies, and economies are becoming more and more disintermediated. Arguably, such technologies and the applications have been an enormous force for good. And yet, governments do not fully embrace these technologies. At most, they have reached a wary accommodation, exemplified by the decision to separate govern computers from the internet, and rightly so, because while these technologies bring undoubted benefits, they also create risks. There are pernicious uses of technology such as cybercrime and the use of social media to promote extremist ideologies and to recruit terrorists. Social media also allows the proliferation of fake news that bedevils governments today.
So in our VUCA world, there are really no perfect answers in which outcomes are perfectly predictable. In such an operating environment, it is not always possible to make decisions on the basis of deterministic and linear analysis. Instead, because change is happening so fast, such conventional approaches could lead us to miss the window of opportunity when it opens. Instead, governments will often be called to make this big decisions under conditions of incomplete information and uncertain outcomes. Of course, governments can play it safe and watch from the sidelines. But then, they will be overtaken by those who are nimbler and those who are more daring. Or they can get some skin in the game now through research, test bedding and pilots so that they can learn the limitations and potential of such technologies in order to be ready when these technologies really start to take off. Pilot programs and prototypes should be deployed when there is insufficient data for proper analysis or if there's no precedent to fall back on. Exploration and experimentation are often more valuable than predictions of analytical models. Beta testing can also encourage citizens to co-create by delivering potential value earlier, which in turn gets their buy-in. Car-Free Sunday SG is an ongoing initiative by the Urban Redevelopment Authority. Roads in the Central Business District are closed on the last Sunday of the month. The rare opportunity and novelty of cycling or walking along open roads of the city attract people in droves. Car-Free Sunday SG can be seen as beta testing of a desired future state, a car-like Singapore. The participation of so many people and the feedback that they provide are part of a co-creation process to determine Singapore's future land use and design. But to experiment like this, governments must accept and even embrace certain levels of risk. It's a form of risk management, and I call this approach fail safe-fail rather than fail-safe. Fail-safe means you risk nothing, but you also achieve nothing and that there's no progress. But if such experiments succeed, then they can be expanded. If they fail, then the damage is contained and a lesson is learned. And of course, to learn from failure. Thomas Edison, the great inventor of the light bulb, is also famous for saying, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. The central thesis in Professor Clayton Christensen's seminal book, The Innovator's Dilemma, is that successful organizations are doomed to fail in the long run because there is tremendous inertia to change a formula that has worked well. In other words, the incumbents of today are locked into their mental models and success formulas. They are prisoners of what they know they know, and it is this inertia that allows the insurgents, the revolutionaries, the startups to sneak in, change the rules of the game, capture market share, and dislodge the incumbent, and the cycle goes on. While this conclusion is based on the study of companies, uh, Professor Christensen told me some time ago that he thought the same principles applied to governments and countries. His solution to the innovator's dilemma is to create small self-contained units within the larger organization 
that have the mandate to experiment with new ideas and new concepts. Mainstream firms, he writes, establish a timely position in disruptive technologies only when the firm's managers set up an autonomous organization charged with building a new and independent business around the disruptive technology. If these new units succeed, then their formula can be proliferated throughout the organization. If they fail, then the organizational impact will be contained. A model of this approach is DARPA, the legendary Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency of the United States Department of Defense that has been the force be behind game-changing innovations like the internet, GPS, and quantum computing. In a similar, though more modest vein, MINDEF set up the Future Systems Directorate, or FSD, which is now known as the Future Systems and Technology Directorate, some 20 years ago, with a mandate to think about the longer-term challenges facing the SAF and to come up with new operational concepts, to experiment with these concepts, and then to get them implemented. MINDEF knew then that FSD would generate frictions and tensions in the system by the very nature of its mission. It would make many feel uncomfortable. But I believe that the FSD was the catalyst for the innovation and spirit behind it that transformed the Singapore Armed Forces from a 2G into a 3G SAF. And going forward, when you think about it, this has to be the way for the SAF to stay ahead. It is not possible to maintain its strategic edge just by buying more and more weapons and platforms. The budget won't support this approach. Instead, the SAF's strategic advantage will be secured by exploiting its capacity to innovate and to change, changing the rules of the game through better operational concepts and superior application of technology to realize these concepts. Singapore has experimented with radical concepts to address our land constraints, especially in the use of underground space. Some of the major experiments include the underground ammunition facility of the Singapore Armed Forces, the Deep Tunnel Sewerage System, or DTSS, and most recently, the Jurong Rock Caverns. The success of these experiments convinced the government to exploit underground space systematically and it has now embarked on developing a comprehensive master plan for underground space. At the launch of the Jurong Rock Caverns, Prime Minister Lee Xianlong made some remarks which I think encapsulate the importance of such an experimental approach. And he said, we must constantly think out of the box, be bold in tackling our challenges, be tenacious in execution in order to create new space for ourselves, whether it is physical space whether it is space which is metaphorical, thinking space, international space, and development space. It is not just the sky that is the limit, but there are also fewer limits than we think to the depths to which we can go because we are limited only by our own imagination. Which brings me naturally to the subject of imagination and its importance. I recently read a fascinating interview with the famous physicist Nikola Tesla, the inventor of the alternating current. And the interview, by the way, is dated 30th January 1926. In that interview, Tesla talks about aircraft that will travel the skies, unmanned, driven and guided by radio. And he said that while motion pictures have been transmitted by wireless over 
a short distance. Later, the distance will be illimitable. And by later, I mean a few years hence. And Tesla thought that temperate zones will turn frigid or torrid. The world he described nearly a century ago is almost upon us, drones, television, and climate change. There are also futures that are not quite with us yet, but they are emerging. In this same interview, Tesla spoke of power being transmitted by great distances without wires. And his most fascinating vision, at least to me, was of wireless achieving closer contact through transmission of intelligence, transport of our bodies and materials, and conveyance of energy. In his vision, and I quote, when wireless is perfectly applied, the whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles of real and rhythmic whole. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance. And the instruments through which we shall be able to do this will be amazingly simple compared with our present telephone. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket. We may not be a single global brain yet, but our mobile phones certainly do fit in our pockets. And in time, Tesla's descri description, in his time, sorry, Tesla's description was an amazing feat of imagination. We can aim to make improvements step by step, but for a small country like Singapore, it is better to aim big in order to stay ahead of the competition. And in this regard, imagination is vital. Singapore has a big ambition to become a smart nation. But what is a smart nation? At one level, it is about exploitation of technologies in order to make the lives of people better by giving them convenient and fast access to information, to customized services, including those that we cannot even imagine today. And the current state of technology already offers all ingredients of the smart nation. But at another, and I would argue more fundamental level, being a smart nation calls for innovation at the systems level, aggregating technologies and combining them with new operating concepts, policies and plans to solve national problems such as the effects of climate change, traffic congestion, aging population, or simply to improve service delivery. But its realization has to be the sum of many innovations, both big and small. Its ambition should be big, but its implementation is in hundreds and thousands of projects, both large and little. At both these levels, it is a product of our imagination, and it is only limited by our imagination. Like Nikola Tesla, we can only begin to imagine the endless possible futures. Just imagine a smart nation where there is increased efficiency, convenience, and connectivity in and between workplaces and homes. Wearable technologies such as hologram devices are used to go on the go to check and respond to work emails. Wi-Fi is available island-wide, eliminating restrictions from fixed data and limited call minutes. In the workplace, robots take over routine administrative tasks, coordinating meetings, conducting research, and running da daily errands. At home, robotic helpers do the household chores and prepare meals. They order groceries when food items are low in stock, which are then delivered by drone to the doorstep. 
Throughout Singapore, there are healthcare pods deployed island-wide at every housing block, and these provide medical diagnosis, dispense medicine, and provide simple medical services as well. And these make it more convenient for elderly residents who have mobility issues and for those who do not have the time to visit a clinic. However, government may not be structured to reach this level of imagination and boldness of vision. Some might argue that it is not even its business. Innovation at this level is perhaps better achieved by the private sector, by individual startups with the daring and the ideas. Empowerment is key. Too much top-down control will kill the spirit of innovation that is central to smart nation. Instead, the role of government should be to facilitate such innovation by funding incentives and arrangements and through flexible rather than restrictive regulations. A good example of this, is, of this approach is Monetary Authority of Singapore's establishment of a regulatory sandbox last year to allow fintech companies to experiment with products and services in an environment where if an experiment fails, it fails safely and cheaply within controlled boundaries without widespread adverse consequences. The government also has a key role in connecting these innovations to their societal environments by encouraging an organization and organizing test bedding and pilots of smart nation technologies in real life settings and perhaps even by ensuring the risk of some of these experiments. In Singapore, a precinct, One North, is now the site of a major pilot for the use of autonomous vehicles or driverless cars, testing not just the technologies for the cars, but also for the road furniture. And such experiments and trials are essential because the development of these technologies and their applications needs to be test-bedded in real environments. If the pilot is successful, then I believe the program may be expanded beyond this precinct into the larger national transport system, relieving road congestion and getting people to their destinations faster and probably more safely. And like Car Free Singapore SG, helping to realize the vision of Carlite Singapore. But there is a political challenge to such ambitions. There are many misconceptions about the technologies associated with a smart nation. One big misconception is that in a 24 by 7 online world, constantly surrounded by innumerable sensors and smart objects all connected to the internet, which is the internet of things, absolute privacy and absolute security can be achieved. As smart objects seek to gather more contextual information on behavior and actions, the ability of smart devices to analyze people's lives and discover their identities will challenge traditional notions of privacy. Such information can clearly be misused and abused, compromising privacy and security. And there's another related issue, a fear perhaps irrational in some countries and rational in others, that the government will exploit these technologies to intrude into the private lives of citizens or to create an Orwellian system of mass state surveillance. To overcome these misconceptions, a mature discussion is needed, not a polemical one. The government has a central role to play in shaping this discussion. It will have to persuade citizens that the benefits outweigh the risks of exploiting such technologies and then explain how the risk can be managed. This is clearly the, in the realm of politics 
and the onus must be on the political leadership to convince the people that such fears are misplaced, at least in Singapore. But this can only be achieved if there is trust between the people and the government. As observed earlier, trust in a fast-changing and complex world, the world of the Anthropocene, is a vital asset to good governance. Before I close, I would like to touch on a critical success factor in the complex world of the Anthropocene, where change is accelerating. Change cannot be avoided. Innovation must be continuous because the world does not stand still. Change and its handmaiden, innovation, must be embraced as an imperative of governance. Furthermore, there is no end point. It is a journey without fixed destination, where the future is an ever-shifting horizon. But people dislike change. It is human nature. Change requires leadership because it means leading people out of their comfort zones. Getting them to change is an act of will. The future fit leader has to persuade the, his people to believe in the need for change, instill confidence in change, and empower his people to change. Successful leaders also make their people brave enough to express their opinions, change their behavior, take risks, and learn from failure. They tolerate mavericks even if they do not embrace them, because all future org fit organizations need mavericks. They are the ones who are prepared to challenge conventional wisdom and come up with the ideas that can change the rules of the game. Some will argue that leaders should be more tolerant of mavericks, and my response to this is yes, but up to a point. A maverick is a maverick only if he's fighting the establishment. If he believes enough in his ideas, he ought to have the courage and conviction of his beliefs to push them, even against resistance. If he gives up the moment he runs into some opposition or official rebuff, then in my book he's not a maverick. And I think this is a sound approach. It is an essentially Darwinian process in which only those who have thought through their ideas and are prepared to stand up and defend them deserve the chance of a second hearing and some mavericks will survive. In today's world of accelerating change, the Anthropocene, we will need to dare to dream and to experiment with things which no one else has done before. We must steel ourselves to embark on journeys of discovery in which the destinations are unknown and where we must be prepared to cope with unexpected outcomes, to experiment, to manage the risk, to fail, and then pick ourselves up and keep going. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, for a very interesting and uh, provocative lecture. I must say that uh, Peter was my boss before. He was permanent secretary of the foreign ministry when I was ambassador in Washington. And I always looked forward to Peter's visits to the United States, and particularly his visits to Washington, D.C., because his Curiosity is great, his interests are immense, and we always met, met an eclectic collection of people. And at that time, you know, he was already collecting the tools to do the kinds of analysis he's doing today. He was talking about futures long before many people in Singapore focused on the subject. So really, uh, Peter, we're seeing the results of this in your first lecture, your second lecture, and really in all the conversations you've been having with some of us who've been uh, 
lucky to be able to work with you. So to the, now it's time for questions, and it's really for you to ask, but uh, there are many questions I would like to pose. I will take the advantage, the privilege of being chair to ask you the first question, Peter, and it is on resilience, because that's part of your lecture. Uh, I think in the concept of resilience and how you are talking about this, there is government resilience and there is people resilience. And I think there's an inverse relationship between government resilience and preparedness and a people's resilience. The more the government is resilient and prepared and does everything right and prevents, in a way, uh, disasters from happening and picks up things very quickly, the less people have to react. And I'm one of those who happen to say that, you know, when the LTA, the MRT trains first broke down and Singaporeans were fuming and they were furious, I thought it's not bad for resilience, you know. You know, we are learning. Not, we are not perfect. Things are not always going to be all smooth. And how do we react as a people? So my question to you is, uh, is that in fact true that the more resilient a government is, the less people have to react? Is, is this on? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I think it will be true uh, if the government uh, tries to take on the responsibility of solving all problems on its own. And if, uh, by sheer good luck, they happen to be successful in several of them, then you have this uh, mindset that not only does government know best, but government will solve all our problems. That, of course, is the most dangerous uh, situation in my view. Uh, because, as I explained in my first lecture, a lot of our uh, complex, wicked problems, and wicked problems are often crises, uh, cannot depend only on governments uh, providing the solutions. They often require the whole of society, not just uh, the people sector, but also the private sector, coming together to uh, tackle these problems. And if you don't have that instinct in each sector that you do have a role to play, and you cannot just rely on government to do it, then we've got a big uh, problem. I would say, in, uh, in, in my experience, the things which I've had to deal with, including the SARS uh, uh, crisis, I think the, 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 there was quite a good balance between uh, the government and the people. The government tried to solve parts of it, but they also had to rely, re rely on the uh, people as well and on the private sector to cope with uh, some of these problems. If it's government doing everything, then you've got a huge uh, problem in this kind of crisis because there's so many things going on at the same time. No government is big enough to, to, to deal with these uh, problems and therefore uh, you, you have to uh, leave it to many of the smaller organizations which are in the private sector, the people, the schools, uh, the individuals, the families, to also uh, play, play their own role. So I, 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 I accept the proposition, but I think uh, if we are smart, we won't allow that to happen because when we look at the big challenges, the ones which really are big, I think that is where the government has uh, begun to learn that you must engage uh, 
the civil society, you must engage uh, the private sector, otherwise you can't do it on your own. But if you try to do it on your own just to score whatever political points you hope to score, then you've got a problem. Uh, thank you, Peter. Questions from the floor? Uh, yes, there's a young lady. Hi, uh, I'm question. a graduate from BJC. Please, uh, yes, give us your name, where you're from. My name is Hui Shan. I graduated from BJC and I'm an incoming NUS student. I would like to ask about uh, smart nation and income inequality. Um, as of now, uh, I feel that AI is still not an extremely disruptive thing to our society. But as of now, our Gini coefficient is more than 0 0.4, even after the tax and transfers. So I would like to ask if, uh, in the future, do you think the, that the smart nation and with increasing artificial intelligence would worsen our income inequality? And do you think our government is doing enough to address this problem? Thank you. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure uh, how I would connect uh, income inequality necessary with AI. AI is, uh, we are still uh, looking at uh, art artificial intelligence at the very early stages. It's uh, undoubtedly in the last couple of years uh, made huge uh, leaps uh, forward. In fact, if you just think about uh, uh, some of the things that have been happening, uh, 1997, I think it was 1997 or 1996, Deep Blue, uh, which was the IBM uh, computer, beat uh, Garry Kasparov, the, the world chess champion at that time. But that was just sheer computing power, number crunching. Then, 20 years later, AlphaGo beat the South Korean uh, uh, world uh, Go champion. Remarkable because Go is supposed to be a much more complex game than, uh, than uh, chess. And it was not number crunching, it was artificial intelligence. So that was a big difference. And then uh, earlier this year, they announced uh, these uh, AI systems uh, playing and beating world poker champions, which is uh, even a more challenging task. So it's only been in the last, I would say, I've been watching this AI issue, it's only been in the last few years that AI is really beginning to uh, take off. But what kind of capabilities uh, is going to uh, uh, provide, uh, where it's going to be used, nobody really knows uh, at this stage. Clearly got huge applications in areas like health uh, provision, it's got uh, possibly a uh, very important uh, application in, in, in all these professional areas like uh, law and uh, also in uh, things like manufacturing, in uh, urban planning. All these uh, AI uh, can uh, obviously shows promise, but how it's going to evolve, nobody knows. And what, of course, uh, people worry about is not so much, I would say, the risk of this uh, creating uh, more income inequality. In fact, I could make an argument that it will actually help reduce some of this inequality by making a lot more services accessible to, to the ordinary folk. But the big concern is what happens when you start getting systems that are so smart that they design themselves and they design themselves to be better and the human being hasn't a clue 
as to how the system is thinking, if it's thinking in a human way or thinking in some other way. I can tell you one of my friends uh, who, who, uh, who runs uh, an AI-related uh, 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 research institute, uh, he gave he, he, uh, some visitors visited the, the institute and somebody asked him to show an example of how uh, this uh, so-called uh, uh, new form of intelligence worked. So they uh, showed a picture of two polar bear cubs and asked the, asked the system, what are these? And the, I guess the, after a bit of thinking about it, the system came back with this answer. Two puppies playing in snow. Now, the researchers there hadn't a clue how the system arrived at the answer. All they knew is that uh, it had never been shown a picture of polar bear. But somehow it was able to discern that these polar bear cubs were, these were the young of some animal. So they interpreted it to be a puppy. And the system furthermore uh, saw white, so they assumed that these uh, puppies were playing in snow. So, you know, things are going on in, that, uh, in, in, in artificial intelligence that uh, even the researchers themselves don't know because clearly artificial intelligence, which is different from number crunching and even different from machine learning, uh, is going on in a way that people find very difficult to understand because you cannot apply the human uh, framework to understand what is going on. So this is a long way of saying, first, I think... Artificial intelligence, if we are very early stages, is going to be a very interesting area. We better pay a lot of attention to it. I think it's going to be uh, something which we need to get into, but we have to understand the risks. But I don't think at this stage we should be overly concerned with uh, issues uh, relating to income inequality. If you ask me, the issues are much more related to the ethical issues and issues relating to how you uh, govern some of these uh, experiments and developments in artificial intelligence. I think we have quite a few questioners gathering. Uh, I'll give the question to the back. The, a gentleman in the green shirt, and there's a question in front, the gentleman in the yellow shirt. Then there are two more questions from the back. Thank you very much. My name is Joshua Chambers. I write for a publication locally called Gov Insider. And in a VUCA world, we've seen increasing political fluctuations and unpredictability, even in stable and seemingly resilient countries, for example in the US, moving rapidly from an Obama administration to a Trump administration, or in the United Kingdom, going from a coalition government to a hard Brexit. What are the potential risks, political risks, for Singapore government that it should prepare for? And how can officials mitigate these risks? Well, I, the, the, the whole point is, I. I which I've been trying to uh, say is you can't predict the future. Mm. And because you can't predict the future, there'll be a whole lot of, a whole spectrum of issues you should be worried about. But in the end, what are the issues you've got to be, a, you've got to worry about are uh, issues uh, as a matter of judgment. What, 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 what will Singapore need to worry about? And I, I, you can start thinking about not just the political challenges, you can think of the economic uh, challenges. What Let's just take the political side. 
what are, what what does it mean uh, when uh, society's expectations of government change? And society's expectations of government are changing, as I mentioned in my uh, lecture, because we have jumped uh, very rapidly from a third world country where all the people want is you give me a job, you give me a roof over my head, I get enough food to eat, that's good enough. Very simple. Now what does it mean when you're at the top of Maslow's hierarchy? What does it mean when we uh, talk about transcendence? Transcendence means helping somebody else achieve his uh, full potential. There's, how does government help in this sort of uh, thing? So it's something, it's a reality we have to uh, deal with. Is this going to be the priority for government? Then there are, of course, other issues, uncertainties. Technology is a big uncertainty. Climate change is a big uh, uncertainty. Our demographics are a big uncertainty because not only uh, are we grappling with this problem of uh, low TFR, but we're also grappling with this uh, problem of uh, an aging uh, population. And each has its own challenges you have to deal with. How do you integrate this into a coherent uh, policy that may not entirely satisfy everybody, but reasonably satisfy the core and most critical issues? Uh, these are going to be a lot of the uh, challenges government is going to face. So if, if you, what I, I, I would say the fundamental point is there are no easy answers. And if you can't just look in the crystal ball and say this is going to be the future, you're often going to get it wrong. So if you cannot be sure what is going to happen, you have to think about many alternatives and these many alternatives, which are the ones I'm going to focus on, it's always a matter of uh, judgment. You'll never get everything 100% right. Uh, there's a question in front, but if I may just say something, Peter, apropos the last question. Uh, one of my colleagues at the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities in SUTD just was visited by three students from another university who came to have a chat with her. And um, they were talking about diversity, and uh, the, my colleague asked the students what they read, you know. And the three students said they didn't read anything about Singapore. And uh, she said, why? She said, because Singapore is so stable, and the government would take care of things anyway. But they read up a lot about the United States because of President Trump. And they didn't know what was going to happen. Everything seemed so volatile, and they were worried about their jobs. So, you know, if you just think of what issues outside of Singapore that so, matter. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so it takes two questions in one, the right. bit about the resilience, you know. Right. To prepared a government, you know, people feel, well, I don't have to worry, you know. But uh, I think... I, I, that, I mean, that's the focus. Yeah. Really. I, I, I would say every government uh, is not just worried about what is going on within the country, uh, a, a country like Singapore in particular, because of our size, our geostrategic uh, situation. Actually, has to worry a lot about uh, the external environment, and worrying about the external environment in preaching today's uh, 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 context is a, a very volatile environment. Uh, all the familiar markets are disappearing, yes. and it's becoming more and more challenging. But where this will end up, I don't know. 
And of course, the big question is whether we're just passing through a phase, whether this is a blip, or whether this is a fundamental reordering of the world, we don't really know. And we may not know for some years to come. So these are all questions I think uh, governments will have to think about. Yes, please. John Biddleston, Terrific Mentors International. Mr. Ho, thank you for a wonderful lecture. Can I ask you this? Singapore's first 50 modern years was built largely on discipline, on very severe discipline in some cases. And that was what really made it successful. To achieve the uh, creative Im imagination and the consensus for it today requires a different, a different mindset. Are we devoting enough time and effort to teaching the young creative disobedience? <laughs> well, in a way, I'm going to address this in my uh, next two lectures. <laughs> well, I don't want to, I don't want to reveal uh, too much, but, it, but you, you, do raise an important, you do raise an important point. Uh, you know, there's this stereotype image of the Singaporean who is uh, uh, very obedient, who follows, uh, follows rules, who do what he's told, not very, not very imaginative. Some people say it's still true. I have actually a, a, a quite a different take on, on this. I think the younger generation, who are very different from my generation, and certainly very different from the, uh, what we call the pioneer generation, uh, are, are far more uh, able uh, to uh, express themselves. And they express themselves not only because they have uh, platforms like the social uh, media, which I think is very critical, but because they are better educated today, they know what the issues are. They, many of them do their homework. Some of them don't, and then that's where you get uh, you, some trouble separating the wheat from the chef. But there are those who, are, uh, who, are do, their, who do their homework properly, and then uh, you are in a situation where uh, the government not only has to listen to them because they've come up with persuasive arguments, but uh, the government also uh, finds value in some of their uh, insights. And so society itself uh, is changing, it's changing uh, very fast. Question is, uh, can uh, government uh, keep up with the uh, pace of change? You see, the point I'm trying to make here is the pace of change. If things were moving, in, uh, as I said, as a velocity, then it's not so difficult, you know, you sit down, analyze everything and everything kind of uh, works out reasonably well. But things are changing so fast. What looks like a sound approach today may no longer work tomorrow because uh, people's uh, expectations have changed again. And you are constantly uh, trying to uh, keep up. But coming back to the young, uh, young generation, uh, I think they are... I don't know whether any of you have visited the JTC launch pad, which is just uh, on the other side of the road uh, here. It's remarkable. You look at the young Singaporeans who are prepared to uh, take, uh, take some of their ideas and who have the conviction uh, to try things out, even if they're not sure of uh, uh, any kind of uh, success from their thing. I've, I met some people I know with stable jobs in government who have said, 
I believe in what I'm doing, I'm prepared to try it out. And some of them succeed, some of them will fail. But the fact that the JTC Launchpad is so successful uh, tells you that there's, uh, there, there are quite a lot of Singaporeans who are beginning to show that uh, kind of uh, guts and gumption which you need to be uh, innovative. So they can be, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a bit more optimistic. There's a very patient gentleman at the back. Yes. Uh, my name is uh, Francis Pavery. I'm a thinking Singaporean. <laughs> I, I, I want to tie the question back to that first lady's question about inequality, and then I'll. Uh, as you said, you know, in the future, one of the things you mentioned was driverless cars. And of course, as we all know, driverless cars is not so much driverless cars among. Uh, commuters or anything is actually driverless cars in public transport because if you imagine that maybe 10 years maybe 20 years cars will be driverless we have taxi drivers we have bus drivers and of course we have you know truck drivers all these people will be displaced so there's no need for all of them so the jobs are gone so clearly there will be some inequalities now that's one I mean there will be other examples the other example I can give is on is uh, retail. We know that retail in many in Singapore you can see a lot of the malls are empty nowadays because many people have gone online. So again, retail services jobs are probably disappearing. So there will be large job losses, large job displacements. Now, one possible solution which people are thinking of right now is. They have no jobs, what do we do? Then we think about this concept of UBI, this universal basic income. Everybody gets money from the government. And it's been tried, of course, as you know, being tried in Finland, in Holland, and of course being rejected in uh, Switzerland just recently. So where do you foresee these kinds of direct, what these kinds of future going? Would Singapore be thinking of UBI? Thank you. Well. I don't know whether they are thinking about it, but if you read the newspapers, you uh, read uh, stories on the internet, I'm sure they, the, the thought has crossed their mind. Now, what they are thinking about it is quite another uh, issue. Now look, the, the issue is uh, not so much whether all these technologies are going to create displacements. They are. There's no doubt. I was in uh, London recently and I was sitting in the, one of these uh, famous London black cabs he was telling me, complaining bitterly about the disruptions caused by Uber. And he said that, you know, in, in London, there are, I can't remember the number, something like 26,000 black taxi cabs. We have the knowledge. What is the knowledge? The knowledge is the ability to get from point A to point B without having to refer to any kind of map or any kind of device. We spent five years acquiring that knowledge. Here comes uh, Uber driver who has his little uh, iPhone or some other navigation device. He doesn't need knowledge. He just uh, says, where do you want to go? He presses the destination, and the, 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 the iPhone or the smartphone will tell him how to get there. And he, he told me something was quite interesting. He said, three years ago, there were hardly any of these cars. Now there are 90,000. 90,000 uh, Uber, I don't know how accurate he is, but 90,000 on the road compared to 26,000 black cabs. And uh, of course, this is disruptive. And the question is, what are you going to do? You know, 
what, what does the government do? You try to make sure that there's a level playing field, but you cannot say stop the march of technology, stop the advance of this kind of service, for which there's a great demand. Otherwise, there won't be 90,000 people, uh, new uh, cars on the road. So, when you ask that question about uh, income inequality, I think it's a loaded question. Of course, uh, people will be disrupted, but that doesn't mean that it is necessarily negative. Because if you say we want to freeze everything, no progress, no technology, because it's just too disruptive, then that's it. There'll be consequences which will come with that kind of approach. But if you say, well, there's going to be some disruption, but let's think about how we can manage it. Because the underlying uh, 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 issue is the pace of change is accelerating. And if you don't understand the implication of this, then of course you'll be worried about all of these things without thinking about what do we do when uh, change accelerates. You can't predict which types of jobs will be affected. You get some sense of where the jobs are going to be dis uh, disrupted or where they're going to be affected. But you cannot be sure whether uh, these jobs will, be, what form this disruption will take place. And of course, with new technologies, there will be new opportunities. So it's not as if it's, uh, you know, when something gets disrupted, there are no new opportunities uh, that are created. That's why I think uh, one of the important uh, points is you have to reskill all the time. I remember reading a report. Uh, it's about the United States. Uh, they say in today's economy, which is changing very fast, a typical worker in uh, the United States will, in his lifetime, which is now a, again a longer lifetime, he has to change his job four to five times, not because of choice, but because of uh, sunset uh, industries and sunrise industries created by new technologies, new demands. So you have to, uh, if that is a reality, then you have to uh, keep on retraining your people. That's why we should not uh, underplay the significance of the Skills uh, Future Initiative. Because you don't know what's going to happen, but you recognize that you have to give a capacity to the system to help people retrain. And training when you are 18 is very different from training when you are 30 or 40 or 50 years old, there are different uh, priorities. You are 30 years old, you've got starting a family, you've got mortgages to worry about and so on and so forth. That, uh, that is a different type of uh, challenge, but you still have to help them. Any others? Yes, please. Um, you have a question. Okay. Um, my name is Rocky. I'm a student at King's College London. I have two um, relatively concise questions for Mr. Ho. Uh, firstly, it's about the relationship between um, what you pose as challenges and risks and uh, the future imagination. Um, by committing to tackling the big challenges, um, the government has a lot of scope in defining what those challenges are, uh, whether it's AI ethics or social inequality or economic competitiveness. Um, by virtue of that, does the government then, um, is the one setting the narrative or defining what the social imagination of the future is in those terms. How does that allow for the census over what our Can you be a little slow, speak a little slower? May, maybe simplify your question. Yeah. I'm not sure whether I understand your question. Okay. Yeah. So um, my question is about relationship between what you said, talked about, challenges you talked about in the future, and by, by um, defining what those challenges are, in some ways the government's also the one setting, setting out um, 
the imagination of the uh, social imagination of Singapore in terms of those challenges? And how does that allow for dissensus over what the future we can choose uh, is? How does that allow for consensus? Dissensus. Or, dissensus. Uh, or over what the future is. Is that a new word, dissensus? <laughs> It's the opposite of consensus. Dissensus. Dissensus as opposed to consensus. Okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. I learn everything. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yes. It's about the official definition okay. of challenges and where is the space for dissensus, yeah. right? Yes. Thank you. And if I want to permit one more short question, it's about what um, Prof Chan calls your tools for analysis and um, the local context. And the question is, I guess to put it provocatively, um, what would you not take from the concepts of the Anthropocene or resilience? Um, and while they claim to be universal concepts, you also need to recognize their provenance, which going by the um, examples you have given, largely come from the global north, uh, and largely come from countries like the United States or, or Britain. What would you not take? I, I can take both questions, except I'm just trying to... I, I find it very difficult to understand both questions. But anyway, let, let me... Let, let me... Sorry, I... I uh, let, let me first uh, deal with your question of uh, dissensus versus uh, consensus. Uh, uh, I don't know whether it's a new word, but it, it is a new word. Some people are saying it's a new word. So, uh, so anyway... Uh, I think things have changed uh, in Singapore. I think it is uh, fair to say that in the early years, uh, it was uh, very much a top-down kind of system where government knew best and government uh, decided uh, these are the big issues and these were the big challenges. And in fact, there'll be hardly any disagreement about what the big issues uh, were in those days anyway, even if we had a, a kind of uh, a big town hall and everybody sat down, they will be uh, worried about the same uh, issues, uh, maybe slightly nuanced, but they'll be worried about housing, they'll be worried about jobs and things like that. But today is a much more diverse uh, uh, society and uh, opinions about the way forward what the challenges are, I would say are much more fragmented. And sometimes you can be uh, uh, confused because uh, of the internet, the social media tends to, uh, whoever uses the social media uh, effectively tends to get a much louder voice and then you think that this is how everybody looks at the issue and in fact it sometimes isn't the case I think. And, and so, how does the, how does the government uh, deal with that? Not easy. They watch the social media, but they also have to have their town halls. They have to get a sense. And I, I, I don't mean to go back to this Our Singapore conversation, but Our Singapore conversation was a very important step forward because that's where you hear what the people are really worried about. And out of our Singapore conversation, which happened in 2013, 2014, what emerged? What emerged were very clear indications of what the people were worried about. It was not the government saying, this is what you should be worried about. It's the people saying what they were, should be worried about. What were they worried about? If I remember, it was housing, it was health, it was transport, and uh, jobs. I can't remember. There were four. There were, there, were, there, were four, there were four big issues. 
And these were the people saying what they were worried about. It's not the government saying, oh, I want you to worry about this, I want you to worry about that. So I think we shouldn't uh, think that uh, you know, the government is deaf to the uh, people's ears, maybe in other, uh, other countries, but I think after 2011, the government says maybe we better listen to the people, and they, they did start listening to the people. And so you have, uh, I think, it's a process. And don't forget, uh, in the economic arena, uh, we've had a far longer track record than in the social arena of all these economic committees where the government actually listens to what the uh, private sector says, what the academics uh, say about the economy. Everything is on the table. There are no sacred cows. You can say whatever you want to say, and uh, I think the track record is, is quite, a, quite an interesting story which is often not told. Very few governments, I think in my view, in my experience, actually have done things like that, where they've actually opened up their whole economic policy for uh, open and honest debate. So we've had already five uh, economic review committees, if you, con if you include, I think, the Committee on the Future Economy. So I think that's one thing. Now you talk about tools, tools of the Anthropocene. What, what no, was that? What do you accept? Do you accept every concept? Do I accept every concept? He clearly does because he put it in his lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely sure. What, what, so can you explain what the issue is? So, so I guess the question is, um, the question is um, from what you've read about Anthropocene and resilience, I mean, those literatures, are there any things from these books or these materials that you would not accept or part of this, parts of these concepts you wouldn't use? No, the, I, I'm only, I, I bring the Anthropocene uh, as, a, as a device to help us understand why the era we are in uh, is an era of rap very rapid change. And rapid change brings uh, special, uh, uh, special challenges to governance. That is the uh, fundamental issue. It is not whether I, I'm going to debate the best scientific minds about whether the Anthropocene exists, whether it started with the uh, Industrial Age, or whether it started with the uh, Great Acceleration in the 1950s. That's not the point. The real point is we are in a very unusual period of time. And if the uh, pace of change continues this way, it's going to have huge implications for your ability to govern. How do you govern when things are changing every few years? Uh, technologies are disrupting themselves, and, uh, you know, and these disruptions are happening every few years. It's a big challenge for government. So that is the issue, not whether I, I'm going to debate the uh, existence of uh, Anthropocene or not. But anyway, I actually do believe that Anthropocene exists, if, since you asked. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, this is going to be the last question because, sorry, the, I saw the gentleman stand up there first. Uh, you know, your questions, have, you have to ask a simple question, a one-sentence question, okay? Yes. Uh, yes. Sir, thank you very much for the talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, just a quick comment uh, and one question. <laughs> so, Singaporeans, I think we have a good streak of creative disobedience if you look at SGAC. I think on SGAT you can see a lot of examples whereby Singaporeans are really creative in very different ways. Um, with regards to my question, actually, my question is on whether it is possible for Singapore government to, to maintain an organisation like, like Skunk Works that is prepared to implement projects and fail fast, uh, fail safe, so that 
sorry, uh, safe fail, so that um, we can uh, uh, try out uh, as many uh, techniques as possible, and also um, uh, uh, organization like uh, that also fulfill the role of um, testing crisis or testing um, uh, disruptive technologies across our agencies, which uh, will help to provide some form of integration across the different uh, agencies. Uh, I think I, hope uh, I, I think I understand this question because <laughs> because I'm at least familiar. Once he mentioned Skunk Works, I know exactly what he's uh, talking about. Skunk Works for the rest of the audience was uh, was uh, was a very experimental outfit within uh, Lockheed. It was called Lockheed Skunk Works, and it was uh, uh, it was given uh, a very uh, special uh, mandate. Uh, to rapidly prototype all kinds of new weapon systems to sell to the American uh, uh, military, and of course, uh, some of the some of the uh, stars uh, out outcomes were things like stealth fighter. Their I can't remember their high altitude uh, uh, reconnaissance aircraft, very fast. Uh, so, so that was very successful, but. I, I must tell you that when you look at Skunk Works, remember there's another lesson. Other companies tried to replicate Skunk Works, including Boeing, but none of them succeeded the way uh, Skunk Works, uh, Lockheed Skunk Works succeeded. And I think it's a combination of both very strong visionary leadership, and not just the visionary leadership of Lockheed, but the visionary leadership of uh, Skunk Works itself, but also uh, the kind of resources and support you give. Because in this kind of environment, uh, failure, is also uh, failure is going to be uh, part and parcel of trying things out. So we talk uh, very blithely about uh, this kind of experiments, but we have to ex accept that there's going to be failure. Now, for governments, they are in a actually very peculiar position because if there's failure, and even if we accept here the logic of uh, experimentation, Politically, sometimes the, 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 the electorate will be very unforgiving when there's a failure, in spite of the fact that the government says, look, I, I told you right at the start, this is an experiment, it may or may not succeed. So what's the government to do? Don't try anything out. But, you know, each time they fail, they are conditioned to uh, be a bit more careful the next time round. But that bonus is very important, and it was bonus that actually helped Lockheed Skunk Works make all the big achievements they made, but it doesn't happen everywhere. I gave you the example of DARPA. The Future Systems Directorate, which, uh, which uh, MINDEF uh, uh, established, arguably helped create the third generation uh, SAF. And I had thought when I was still in service whether we could do something like that for government as a whole. And my conclusion was you couldn't do it. It's just too complex to uh, manage it. And you have to really uh, rely on individual agencies deciding what are the things that are worth uh, doing and they, if necessary, set up their own skunk works or the equivalent of a future systems director. But this is always a balance between, you can't mandate this kind of thing. It's just uh, got to be somebody who's got the idea, who's got the guts and gumption to drive it, and then it happens. But it doesn't happen all the time. Just because you've seen one successful example doesn't mean it's going to be successful every time it's uh, replicated. 
So, so you, have to, you have to be very practical about this sort of thing. Well, Peter, you've really stimulated the audience and there's been a flow of questions and I've had to deny some members of the audience the opportunity to stand up, but we've really exceeded the time. Now, I'm supposed to draw this to a close and say a few words, which is really very difficult because you've covered a wide range of, um, it's been such a wide-ranging lecture. But what I have heard is clearly there is discomfort with the advancement, the rapid advancement of technology and how we should react to this. And this is not a display, this is not a wrong sense to get because everywhere people are talking about this. And I have heard Silicon Valley uh, people who invest in startups, uh, technologists, who now talk about the social responsibility of, for the use of technology. So that question is beginning to occur to people who deal with technology. And Bill Gates said, you've got to, maybe we should tax robots. And uh, you know, Peter put out as a slide, I remember seeing Hawkins, Elon Musk, and Gates have you know, talked about their concern with the AI. So that fear is not uh, misplaced, that concern is not a misplaced one. So that's uh, one question and issue that will be, I think, emerging more and more and what you do with, uh, how do you deal with technology? It will come and you have to embrace it, but how do you embrace it smartly and work with it and try to minimize the disruption for our society? The second point I want to make here, um, Peter, is you have laid out all these concepts for the VUCA world, you know, things we have to react to, black swans, white elephants, you know, resilience, uh, all kinds of black elephants, sorry. Actually, people talk of the orange elephant in the United States, you know, because he's so suntanned. <laughs> but um, the point is, you know, I mean, all these are concepts and all our bureaucrats are exposed to this now. The question I have, but I don't require you to answer this, Peter, is whilst we understand the concepts, how do we weave it into our work? And how do you actually prepare for it? Think David Cameron. Look at what he did, the Brexit referendum. How did he ever face this black swan or black elephant or whatever it is, you know? And he made the gravest mistake of his career, historical mistake. You know, so as bureaucrats, even if you know these concepts, how do you implement? And between knowing and action and behavior, how do you change behavior? I think we still don't understand that. But thank you very much for really exposing all these wonderful ideas and to, to let us go home thinking about a lot of things that we don't know about and have to think about. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Ho and Professor Chan. Mr. Ho's next lecture will be on 3rd May, and we hope to see you then. Good evening and thank you.